you know, I'm re- also really hoping that that one day I'll be able to sit in my rocking chair and and say that I helped or at least did not hinder the beginning of careers of the people who will be the great array language implementers of the future. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor, and today with you, we have a repeat guest that I will announce in a second. But before we do that, we'll go around and briefly do uh, quick introductions. We'll start with Bob, then go to Stephen, and then go to Rich. I'm Bob Terrio. I'm a J enthusiast, and I'm now involved with building a J wiki or rebuilding a J wiki, which is a challenging thing, and we're, we're making some progress with that, but uh, more about that later. I'm Stephen Taylor. I'm an APL from way back and currently the KX librarian. I'm Rich Park. I'm an APL evangelist and working on uh, training materials, tutorials and such. And I work for today's guest at Dialogue Limited. And as mentioned before, my name is Connor. Uh, I'm your host, uh, professional C++ day to day, but uh, in all my free time, array languages and uh, combinator enthusiast at large. And excited to talk to our guest today, who um, we had on previously, but didn't really delve into his personal background. But before we introduce him, uh, we'll throw it to Bob, who's got a couple of short announcements, and then we'll hop into today's interview. I'll be really quick. Um, we have been working on the JWiki, and one of the things that this podcast, actually people on this podcast were pushing us into, was trying to develop something like TriAPL, which is what dialogue does which is really cool and it's a quick way to get access to uh, apl through the browser and jay didn't have that and now we're in the process of putting together the front end to we've actually got jay running in javascript which means you don't need to download anything you just fire up your browser and you can run jay which is really quite a big deal um and um lots of work by uh by uh Will and John and uh, Joe and John and and lots of people have got that put together, so that's been really good. And the other thing is, I'm looking for feedback. I put a video up on an introduction to Jay um, last week, and it caught a little bit of p- attention. But I am looking for feedback for it. So in the show notes, um, then there will be show notes, and there will be a transcript. Uh, actually, last week's guest. Uh, uh, Rodrigo mentioned that we probably should be mentioning this off the top, that we have show notes and we have transcripts, and uh, we can be reached at arraycast.com. And having done all that, now I've taken up far too much time, and back over to you, Connor. Awesome. Yeah, that'll be exciting. I think uh, the, the triapl.org um, is, is actually how I basically fell, ended up falling in love with APL, because I heard about it on a podcast once, and uh, went and Googled it, stumbled upon it, and having like a web-based REPL that you can just start playing with, I think is uh, really lowers the barrier um, to entry for any language, whether that's APL, C++, J, etc. So awesome that that's going to be coming for J soon. Um, with all that said, today our returning guest is Morton Kromberg, the former CXO and current CTO of Dialogue Limited. I apologize for all the times in the past I've referred to the company as Dialogue APL, which is not the name of the company, but I always interchange the two. Morton's going to be bringing us uh, back in time to talk a little bit about about his time at IP Sharp and Associates, and then his time currently at uh, Dialogue Limited, and then also we're going to talk a bit about uh, the future of Dialogue Limited and APL. So go as far back in time as you'd like to, and, and super curious to hear what you have to say today. Okay, thanks. It's uh, it's great to be back. I'm in awe of of the, the the work that you guys do. I'll come back as many times as you ask me. 
So I'm going to go back even before uh, IP Sharp Associates tell a little bit about how I discovered APL. It, it started off very promising. I was born in 1962, which is the same year that Ken Iverson published a programming language. Uh, but right after that, my parents whisked me off to a country called Botswana between South Africa and what's now Zimbabwe. And I grew up there with, I think, an AM radio, probably the most advanced tech in the house. Um, but when I was 15, I was back in Norway about 1977, I guess. And at the end of high school, I got a, a basic course for two weeks as part of a math course. And shortly after that, I noticed in the local newspaper that the first Commodore PET in Norway was on display in uh, the biggest department store in Norway. Downtown Oslo, only a 20-minute tram ride from my house. Uh, so I headed down there, and curiously, the department manager let me sit and play with it after school pretty much every day for months, uh, presumably because a kid sitting in front of it made it look a bit less intimidating. It looked a bit, I don't know if you've seen pictures of the Commodore PET, it looks a bit like sort of a white Darth Vader helmet perched on a, on a box. Um, so I, I spent months learning basic uh, Rotor Moonlander as one does game. And uh, I spent so much time there, even today I remember the taste of the, the chocolate milkshakes they served in the restaurant at the department store. <laughs> um, after that, I... Um, I wanted my own machine, so I started getting hold of little 6502 or Z80, Z80-based machines and doing hand-assembled uh, programming. Uh, I played with an HP calculator that taught me that reverse polish was really not what I wanted to do. And then I started a really big project. I bought something from the UK, uh, a NASCOM 1 which was a kit that arrived in a box with a single printed circuit board and little bags full of resistors and capacitors and integrated circuits. And I had to do 3,000 solder points. And for a kid who just bought his first soldering iron, that wasn't really uh, a good project. It did boot up, but there was a dry solder somewhere, which meant that every time I hit the reset button to return control to the, to the debugger, a random column of RAM was, was corrupted. And when you have no way to save and load programs, you have to type it all in again. That's a bit discouraging. So I don't know why I still enjoy coding to Electric Light Orchestra's New World Record, even though that's what I was listening to then. Um, so somehow I, I enjoyed it. But then APL arrived in my life, fortunately. Um, in 1979, a Canadian company called IP Sharp Associates, who were involved in the initial APL 360 implementation for IBM, and we're now offering APL timesharing on mainframes located in Toronto. They were sending one or two people out to very many capitals in Europe to set up data concentrators so that large corporate clients like Rank Xerox and Kodak could do uh, reporting via local dial-up lines into the IP Sharp network. So they got email and, and reporting applications. And the crew who arrived in Oslo for IP Sharp Associates moved into a flat that my dad was moving out of, and I helped them carry some furniture. And they heard I was interested in, in computers, and they said, why don't you come down to the office? And they showed me you know, the, um, the one, two, three, plus four, five, six that we've heard about so many times. And you know, I remember a small wow, but you know, nothing impresses kids. I just sort of concluded that this was a natural progression, right? There's assembler, and then there's basic, and then there's APL. 
And uh, pretty soon, basic would be history, I presumed. And now, more than 40 years later, I'm still puzzled uh, about the state of the of the universe. <laughs> but I fortunately managed to, to use APL uh, ever since then. So, you know, I wrote my own adventure game and uh, perhaps the least useful program ever written, a very, very partial basic interpreter written in APL. And today I still feel that those those couple of years there where I was just messing around is where I actually learned 90% of the skills that I have to this day as, as an APL programmer. Um, and a funny story from that time, I actually managed to sign up a timesharing customer for IP Sharp Associates during that time. There was a, a lady in the horoscope business. I don't think I'll call her an astrologer, but she noticed me playing with a PC at some show and she had a book with a basic program listing in it to compute uh, planetary positions and asked if I could implement that. So I typed in these 50 pages of, of basic code, but the resulting planetary positions were all over the place because the basic uh, interpreter on this machine used single precision, single precision arithmetic. Unless you forked out the cache for the floating point coprocessor, which cost about as much as the, the PC had cost uh, to begin with. But curiously, the serial I.O. adapter cost an order of magnitude less. So I figured out I could write the code in Sharp APL and then just have the basic interpreter dial up and type in the birth coordinates and get the planetary positions back, uh, consuming 10 cents worth of CPU time and then producing a report that was sold for $10. So that was good business for, for her and uh, probably not very interesting business for, for IP Sharp Associates. <laughs> but, uh, but that was my first taste of uh, client-server computing, I guess, back in 1979 or something like that. And then there, there were a couple more years of where I was essentially an item of furniture in the IP Sharp Oslo office. They let me come and go as I please and make coffee and... Uh, but eventually they decided they could rent me out to customers. So I did things like uh, back in Norway then, they were uh, modeling the profitability of North Sea oil exploration. And uh, I also wrote a crew scheduling system for an airline. Everything was made by hand back then. It was it was a wonderful time to, to be a programmer. And uh, so I finished high school and I tried um, studying maths and computer science but really struggled with motivation because APL, working for IP Sharp was just so much fun. I even tried tricks like moving 500 kilometers out of Oslo to Trondheim and the Norwegian Institute of Technology to get away from the IP Sharp office. But of course, the airline with the crew scheduling system just flew me down south when they needed tweaks to the system. Um, until one day I showed up to a meeting with them in a tracksuit and the head of IT decided that it was too embarrassing um, to have them relying on something written by a kid and he'd better, he'd better take care of it. But that's how I remember it anyway. Uh, and I'm telling the story. And at that point, sort of a, a big, a big change, Gitta, Gitta Christensen, who was on a few episodes ago, explained that she imported me to Denmark, but, uh, there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, in fact, I used data mining. I used APL to data mine Gitta. Uh, because at that time, IP Sharp Associates was entirely managed by email, perhaps one of the first companies in the world uh, to be driven that way. 
And I was stuck there alone in the Oslo office, uh, miles away from anybody else. And I decided that in order to find out what was going on in the company, I needed to write a program that spooled the entire email directory out to file once a week and then do a diff. Because then I could see which email groups had been created and who had joined the company. And in addition to the who is function that the email system had, I could write a who was function that would tell you about people who were who were no longer there. And suddenly one day I noticed a very interesting looking person only 500 kilometers south of where I was. And uh, the IP Sharp system had a text messaging facility, the write paren MSG system command. And shortly after that, I, I moved, did import me to Denmark. Um, it is the girls who call the shots most of the time anyway. So I got to, to Copenhagen. I tried to resume an academic career there, but uh, although I learned Simula in Oslo and Pascal and COBOL in Copenhagen, we got pregnant and I finally had the excuse I needed to abandon my academic career, which was, <laughs> which I, you know, to be honest, I was, I was ill-suited to anyway. Although 35 years later, I did have the pleasure of returning to the very same building that I dropped out of because I was invited back to the University of Copenhagen to give a course in APL to the FUTARC team. I don't know if you've heard of FUTARC. It's a functional array-oriented compiler. And they realized there were APL people nearby. So, uh, so that was a lot of fun, uh, teaching them APL. How many people were in that course? Oh, I think it was, I don't know, four or five master's students uh, working on the compiler. Wow, that's so cool. I had no idea. Yeah, that, that was fun. The only, uh, the only unfun thing was walking through the canteen and feeling very, very old. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, at that point, I you know, abandoned academic career. I became a full-time APL consultant uh, at IP Shop Copenhagen and very quickly settled into a, a pattern where Gita would talk to clients, understand requirements, and write application code while I concentrated on building infrastructure and tools, uh, sort of multidimensional databases in APL. And uh, interesting, during that time, we also met Adam's dad, Henry Brudzewski, who was a leading figure in the APL community in Denmark at that time, a consultant like us, not working for, for IP Sharp. And uh, we had two pairs of, of children uh, each at pretty much the same time, and we lived near each other and our families became close friends and that's uh, part of the reason why uh, you know we we would we babysat adam at apl conferences and his mother looked after our kids because um, we were at all the apl conferences back then every year um yeah and then so that went on for a while um towards the end of the time at ipside i sort of I managed to get to work with the people in Toronto in the ivory tower on tools that were used outside the Danish office, uh, like 3270 UI prototyping tools and converters from other APL systems to Sharp APL, which was something we did uh, a fair amount of at, at IP Sharp Associates. And getting to, to interact with people, well, like Stephen, although Stephen was maybe in Australia at that point, but certainly interact via, via the email system. Uh, with Leslie Goldsmith and and Lib Gibson and uh, key application developers uh, at IPSA. 
But then, just as as things were getting really interesting uh, at Ipsa, it just suddenly disappeared overnight from under our feet, as the the bottom dropped out of the mainframe timesharing uh, business. IP Sharp was also selling their EPL interpreter on mainframes at the time, but that people didn't want to use mainframes anywhere near as much as before, and we were all laid off, and and IP Sharp just from our perspective at least disappeared. Um, Overnight. What year was this taking place in? This was like late 80s, early 90s? This was 1989. Okay. I think. I think Reuters acquired Ipsa in 1987 or 88 and then spent about a year deciding to get rid of all the people who were not in Toronto working on databases. Because Reuters, I think Gita talks much more about this, about how Reuters wanted the historical time series databases that that IP Sharp had collected over a couple of decades at that point. Mm -hmm. Reuters had no historical information, but Reuters was not interested in being a software company. They just wanted the the data. So those of us who were doing APL application development in the, in the, you know, far away from Toronto, we, we were all laid off overnight pretty much. It was really funny, actually. I don't know if I, do I have time. Yeah, the, the, being fired by Reuters was one of the most fun things that's ever happened to me because IP Sharp was this company where what was I? I was twenty. I don't know, three, four at the time, five maybe. And they they really didn't want to upset anybody, so they gave us this package, you know, um, retraining package. And so they they asked for our job descriptions and. When I was 24, 25 at IP Sharp Associates, I had the kind of responsibility that you would have to be one of the you know top managers at Reuters to be, you know, I could I could buy things and take decisions. So they concluded that we were all senior management types, and they gave us this fantastic uh, pa- retirement package with cons- you know talking to psychologists and <laughs> being given guidance on what to do next and. Uh, and and you know so, and we you know we we did it all because it was fun. But then we said, but you know we're going to form our own company anyway. So essentially, IP Sharp Copenhagen just continued. We bought all the furniture and um, continued business uh, the day after, as if nothing had happened, because the customers still needed us for for a while anyway. So the technical staff of of IP Sharp Copenhagen, which was Gita and myself and Kim Andreasen. We formed this company called Inside Systems in 1990 and just carried on doing APL consulting, now focusing on, on workstations rather than mainframes. There was still a couple of years of mainframe consultancy to do where we made just a ton of money, but we could see that that was all, that was all dying. Um, so... Early 1990s, you had the arrival of Windows and OS2 and graphical user interfaces. And that was a real worry because it made the existing APL systems at the time really look like dead ends. The, the first GUI interface for APL Plus uh, really you know, didn't look promising. It essentially gave APL programmers direct access to the Win32 API. And if you cast anything correctly from APL, that was just the end of your APL session, something that APL programmers really couldn't, could not deal with, right? A completely untyped language trying to make Win32 API calls is, uh, is never going to work. So, so we investigated small talk. 
which quite a few APL programmers at the time went off um, and did. I think probably at least half a dozen people I know went off and did did small talk. Really? Uh, yeah, because it was seen as sort of the nearest thing. If you couldn't have APL, what are you going to do? Uh, well, small talk. Really? Seemed like the obvious choice at the time. Yeah, for a lot of people. That is a crazy piece yeah. of uh, programming language lore that in the 90s... Is it? Yeah. You need to talk to... Uh, you need to invite Romilly Cocking on the show. Okay. Uh, because he ran a, a very successful consulting firm in the UK, Cocking and Drury. And they, I think they switched the whole company to doing small talk for a while. Wow. And he can tell you more. He can tell you about that. We only looked at it very briefly. Um, and we looked at things like, I mean, most of you, well, no, half, half of you weren't around then. There was Gupta SQL base. And there were tools called application manager for OS2. I remember OS2 was a big thing at the time as well. But the, none of those were really... They didn't turn us on at all. And fortunately, at that time, Dialog or Dyadic Systems put out Dialog APL, and we suddenly had hope that that APL would be a viable platform for Windows GUI. So we stuck to our, our guns in, um, yeah, early 90s now, we're talking. Um, but the big problem we had was that we really had skills to do consulting for large companies to do data analytics on their corporate data is what we'd been doing for the last uh, decade. And we didn't have access to the data. So one of the things that Inside Systems did was team up with a Belgian company called Technosis, who had a product called SQLink, which was, I think, a precursor to ODBC. So they were actually selling ODBC as a something very similar to ODBC as a package. Uh, their big trick was connecting Macs to AS400s because nobody else could do that. Um, and we wrote uh, um, an adapter for APL for that, which we managed to sell to Dial. So it was available for Dialog APL, APL Plus, and Sharp APL. There was a version for APL2 as well, but IBM decided it was easier for them to write their own to get it through the legal department to use our tool. Um, and then later we adapted to ODBC. It's the same interface that's in Dialog APL today. The, the SQ APL interface was built back in the early 90s. And then ODBC was supposed to die, but of course it never did. Well, it sort of died on Windows, but then it became the standard on Linux. It was really weird. Anyway, um, so so we had to invent that tool in order to have access to the corporate data from the um, from the workstations, and through that, of course, we got really well connected with with a lot of people in in the industry, the the vendors, and did consulting projects for a lot of lot of major corporations. Um, but we were getting really tired of trying to sell our skills. For as a small company, so just being a four-man consulting band was was really really tiring. There was always either way too much work or much too little work to do. So we wanted to become part of something bigger. We 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 nearly sold ourselves to Technosis, but then they were acquired by Progress very sh shortly after. So we're really happy we we didn't do that. Um, but then as as uh, sort of related to having become the the ODBC or the, the client server people, we were hired by a company called Adatum who had a, a 
DOS-based at the time business intelligence package. And they hired me as a consultant to sort of give them an architectural blueprint for how they should move that over and become a Windows system. But halfway through that consulting project, it was abandoned uh, in favor of hiring me as the new CTO of, um, of a datum and Gita as the Nordic sales manager. So we then built a, a company in Denmark with about 25 people who were doing, doing a combination of development in Dialog APL of this business intelligence package and then selling it in the, in the Nordic region. And that company was driven by an ex-SA Special Armed Services uh, soldier from New Zealand who had been in satellite TV and now wanted to, to conquer the world with this. And he had 50% year-on-year growth uh, for five years, heading for a NASDAQ IPO. And in the last two years, um, under the loving strokes of venture capitalists who uh, who looked at us and told us, your, you know, your, risk, your R&D budget is too small, it should be three times higher, hire some people. And uh, eventually, we decided to bail out of that. Um, and and in fact, just after we'd left the company, missed the, the IPO because the dot-com bubble burst. So that was in, what was that, close to 2000. They just missed it. But it, it was, the story had a happy ending anyway, because they sold the company to Cognos for quite a lot of money. And that's where we, Gita and I, earned the money that we later used to buy our share of, uh, of dialogue. Um, there's also a really funny story at the end of the datum, which is that the datum was sold to Cognos. Cognos was then sold to IBM. And I don't know exactly what the numbers were, but probably something like IBM ended up paying more than $100 million to buy back an APL application which used to be an internal IBM planning system that they had let the original author, George Kunzel, take with him as part of an early retirement package. <laughs> That's awesome. So, funny story. And they are, well, maybe I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't speak about this, but that, that system is not dead yet. Yeah, so a data ended and we spent a few years as APL consultants again in sort of the general market. And at one, a few years later, a couple of the major customers of Dialog or Dyadic, as it was at the time, felt that something was something needed to be done to avoid the risk of Dyadic being acquired by one of the major customers. Uh, a big oil company in the U.S. was mentioned as a potential buyer, uh, and they were really worried that that Dialog APL would become some internal tool and and effectively disappear from the market. So these two companies. Um, Simcorp and APL Italiana, they they were competitors at the time, um, and they teamed up to find new management and to fund uh, the acquisition of Dialogue and then in install new management. And that became Gitta and, and myself. So that's when the story started at, at Dialogue in 2005. So wait, what happened? Simcorp and APL Italiana, they they didn't, it's, I don't think they acquired Dialog APL, but it sounded, or Dialog Limited, but it sounded like... No, well, they did. Actually, what the, the way, what happened was they actually, they approached Gita and myself and asked whether we could act as headhunters to find new management for, for Dialog, because they knew, you know, we knew everybody in the market. 
basically. And I, th I suspect Carlos Benici at APL Italiana had already worked out what was going to happen, and that we would fail, and then we would fall on our swords and say, well, okay, we'll, we'll do it. Uh, I think he knew secretly I wanted to do that anyway. So I wanted to get back in the APL business, uh, having started out at IP Sharp Associates. So we were you know, absolutely delighted to fail in the search. Um, and get together with APL. So APL Italiana Simcorp put up about three quarters of the funds and we put up one quarter to acquire Dialogue Limited in 2005. Oh, I see. So there were three owners um, at that time. And of course, our so, so that's sort of the beginning of the Dialogue story. Uh, the, the Dialogue company at that time, the APL group of it, it was actually a company that also had a big IBM AIX RS6000 reseller unit, and the, it was split up and the parts were sold separately. Um, but the APL side was about five people uh, at the time. And obviously, our mandate was to start by you know, replenishing a very small development team, half of which was rapidly reaching retirement age, approaching retirement age. Um, so we we did a road trip. We visited all the major customers. Uh, they've told us afterwards they expected that we would just walk into a room and tell them how many months they had to get out of, of Dialog APL because we were acting on behalf of some major company that had, uh, had bought it. But um, we explained our vision and we you know, started, we told them we'd offer services like escrow and support for cherry pick fixes to customer specific branches and architecture reviews and tuning and re-architing projects and so on and changed, changed the pricing so that people had to pay for the usage. So before you would just buy a copy of a developer license, but at that time we revised the pricing so that Pretty much all the revenue came from support contracts, which are some function of the usage of Dialog APL at the customer site. So the number of internal users or the number of APL-based seats that they sold of their application, or it was really up to the customers to come up with some number that they already had, ideally, that they were comfortable using as the as the baseline for the support contract. And um there were lots of people in the UK in particular who sort of shouted that the Vikings have come and they're, you know, they're going to loot and pillage dialogue and it will soon be gone. But in fact, the major customers were absolutely delighted because they were making plan B, which was going to cost them double figure million dollars uh, and would had a very high likelihood of failure. So the, the customers were really happy to, to pay more and to pay based on their usage. Um, and this had the effect of not just increasing the revenue, but also making it very much more predictable, which allowed us to feel comfortable hiring people. So since then, the revenue has just grown um, fast to begin with, but it's still, it's still growing because these companies are successful and selling more seats and uh, there's a steady trickle of um, migrants from other, other APL vendors. It's also interesting, I think, that since that one price adjustment we made in 2006, we have not increased our prices. We have not adjusted them for inflation. So the, 
the price of the new 64-bit system that was introduced at the time, which was 50% more than the, the old 32-bit system, but where that fee included both 32-bit and 64-bit because most people would need both for a, for a transition period, is the same now in real terms as the 32-bit system cost uh, back then, I think, if you adjust for, for inflation. A few years ago and with web applications, there was a big outcry when people switched over from buying an application going to subscription basis. It sounds like you guys hit the subscription idea, you know, 15 years ahead. Well, it was the only way to... Uh, and, and it's fair. I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, of course, it depends on how big the numbers are, of course, whether something is fair or not. But I think the, the customers are, are very happy with, with what they got. You mentioned conversion projects that the is the plan B if they had to get off APL, and you said that there's a high risk of failure in those. Do I recall that you have some some war stories from that? Um, I don't know that I have any. I can I can repeat since they're all <laughs> fairly fairly ugly. I mean, some of the customers, of course, involved had already tried this, right? So they knew very well that um, it was going to fail. And there are other companies who just said, well, we, okay, so we can get out of APL if we get rid of 50% uh, of the functionality of the application, but we want to do that anyway because, you know, because of reasons uh, which may be good or, or, or not. Um, but anyway, so, so in that first, that first few years, we uh, we increased the revenue significantly, and we were probably a dozen, a bit more than a dozen people after three or four years. And we, you know, we had the people. We were starting to train the people who would take over eventually from Scholes and Streeter. Um, and of course, we have all of the original people still on the team today, except John Scholes, who who passed away, of course. But Jeff is still there. The original implementer of Dialog uh, APL is still there working part-time, and even Pete Donnelly, who was the, the managing director, works on testing and writing parts of our documentation uh, to this day. Um, so, you know, the annual user meetings were growing, and I think in general, all the customers had stopped worrying about whether, whether Dialogue was, you know, we would be there for as long as any of their planning horizons. They started hiring people. We invested in the the, the Bible, the 800-page. Uh, I once swore I would never, ever learn a programming language that had an 800-page manual, and then, and then I became a co-author. <laughs> um, so Bernard Legrand did most of the work, and a few of us were involved. And, of course, now really happy to see Rodrigo uh, doing a proper job of, of modernizing it. Um, but anyway, so, you know, first five years, customers relaxing, hiring new people, thinking about extending their APL systems instead of getting rid of them back in, yeah, just before 2010. And, uh, and of course, having been for the last 15 years before we joined Dialog consultants and building our own product in Dialog APL, we also came with a to-do list of things that we really thought the product needed in order to become competitive so, and with the new developers on board, we could then really start on, on that. So um, we completed the 64-bit uh, conversion and the object-oriented features, which uh, those were actually pretty much done by the time we arrived uh, 
John Daintree's design pretty much C uh, implementing C-sharp object model in Dialogue APL because, of course, at the time it was the .NET framework that was the big thing if you wanted to do any um, web programming, you basically wanted to write ASP.NET applications. And John did all the work to allow you to write ASP.NET uh, plugins in Dialogue APL and so on. And therefore, the OO needed to be quite closely aligned with C Sharp, or at least that was the, the thinking back then. Um, and then we, we added Unicode support uh, early, very early on. And I'm really proud of that implementation we used proper character arrays not utf8 strings and we managed to design it in such a way that existing clients could move over to to unicode almost without making any code changes um, and i'm pretty confident we got that right because the russian clients said it was good so and they moved very quickly and and if they if they thought that i think that's the ultimate uh, the ultimate proof um and then, of course, quickly following on from that was, was uh, putting APL source code in Unicode files, which is something we've been working on for more than a decade. And I, I still wouldn't claim that we've got it right, but we're getting, we're getting somewhere now. Um, tooling for uh, efficient conversion of XML and then later JSON and CSV files. Um, and then sort of towards the end of that phase, I guess seven or eight years into the dialogue story, really understanding the ascendancy of Linux as part of cloud computing and the fact that in the future, probably everything would be Linux and there would be a Microsoft Linux and, and there is today. So introducing the ride and, and just generally trying to make sure that all the tooling that we put in, so like the CSV, the XML, everything should work the same way on Windows and Linux and Mac if we possibly could. Any, anything that made sense in all the environments would be the same everywhere. Uh, adding support for secure sockets in our TCP layer. Um, and of course, adding the Mac OS and the Raspberry Pi versions. And then sort of the first little stab at attracting new, real new users was running the annual problem-solving competition, uh, which also started in that well, actually, very early on in the in the middle period, um, and on the language side, of course, uh, us old Sharpies wanted to uh, bring in some of the great ideas from Sharp APL and J into Dialog APL, and uh, fortunately managed to um, connect with Roger, and and that was really wonderful. So we could have the best of both worlds. We could have our OO and our Floating arrays, but we could also have the rank operator and key and extend dyadic iota to higher ranks and um, and stuff like that. Oh, and futures and isolates also went in um, in that period, so you could have this user controlled parallelism. That's also nearly ten years ago now. So that was sort of the middle, the expansion phase after the the big bang if you like. And then the last five years or so, we've started to feel that Dialogue APL is reasonably competitive. You know, you can you can show it to a programmer of, of some other language and they, they will notice some warts in the tooling and so on. There's, there's much more work to do, but you could really, it was worthwhile now trying to understand how to attract uh, a new generation of users. Um, 
And interestingly, in the last five years, we've I think it's true that technologically, it's a period where the biggest, the very biggest customers and the new users, the more technically oriented users, are actually asking us for the same thing. So they want you know, ways to do cloud computing and uh, continuous integration and all that stuff. And that definitely wasn't true. If you go back 10 or 15 years, there was much more of a disconnect between what the big customers and, and the new users want. So what, what have we been doing? You know, well, really continuing mostly. Um, so much more investment in this cross-platform development. So making the ride a really capable development tool. The HTML renderer, which is sort of like, I don't know, Node.js for, for APL, where you can, you can pop up a window and populate it with the HTML JavaScript and works on all platforms. And then deciding how to, to run Dialogue APL in containers effectively. Making text files for source mainstream, understanding GitHub, and then starting to think about, and this again, this is something where we still have a way to go, project managers, package managers, uh, and so on, things that other programming languages take for granted, where we're just starting to see the first um, promising tools emerging. Um, and although we can't yet see a way to to make Dialog APL itself open source, and that's something we can talk about uh, a bit later if, if you'd like. We are trying to publish more and more of our, all the coding, the APL code that we produce, so all the tooling layers that are done in APL uh, under MIT license, typically on GitHub, because we think that that part of, of what we do works really well with open source, while the interpreter, I think there are good reasons why it doesn't work well Certainly not right now. Maybe it could uh, could in the future. Yeah, and then we we discovered through participation originally in functional conf and then later lambda conf that um, there is nice overlap between some of the features of APL and functional programming. So we've really been able to present APL as a pragmatic functional array oriented language. You know, it's not a not a pure functional thing but it's it has it's much easier to explain apl and the, the benefits of array oriented programming to a functional audience than it is to to other types of programmers they pretty much you know they get what you're talking about quite quickly um, because it it maps nicely to some of the things they're doing so we've been putting in function trains um and more well more functions maybe that's not really so much functional, but where interval index, uh, at stencil, um, things that all work nicely uh, in doing functional programming. And then we've been in the last few years, it's really pleasing to see we've managed to recruit quite a few uh, people from outside the APL community and really help start building a, a modern array community. Um, that's really good. Some of them, you know, you're already there. You're very familiar with Adam, Aaron, Rich, who's here, Rodrigo, who's been on, and, you know, Marshall Lockbaum, who was at Dialogue for a while before he moved on, essentially because he wanted to go faster than we were able to do. Um, and uh, the average age of the Dialogue team has come down dramatically. Uh, that's really great. 
and the you know we introduced the the free personal and non-commercial license and uh, i don't know bob maybe i'll ask you to delete this before publication in a week but we're actually trying to look now at whether we can create a license where we actually get rid of the non-commercial license and just put a lower fee uh, sort of a lower limit on the um on the what is it the um the royalty license so that you can use a dialogue apl you can you can distribute it as you wish up to a certain level of revenue without contacting dialogue for permission to do that but we're still seeing whether the whether the lawyers can get that to work it's interesting this is actually coming out of deploying apl in docker containers because people are creating samples that they want to share with each other and if you do that via a docker container now you're in violation of our non-commercial license, which says you can't redistribute Dialog APL. And obviously that's that's a very bad thing. So um, we want to do something about that. And in, you know, in general, make it easier to get hold of Dialog APL. Um, but we can't shoot off our own feet, um, obviously. It, it's a balancing act, isn't it, really? Because you're you're trying to promote, but at the same time, and I guess maybe this comes back to some of the open source stuff as well, you need to keep proprietary control over that part, which is the core to your com company, but you also want to promote, and you do promote other ways, but as you say, you've, you've done it by some of the add-ons, making them open source. Yeah, yeah, and well, and making the non-commercial free. Uh, I, yeah, I... Yeah, I mean, maybe we should, you know, wait a bit and then talk about open source. I, th I think we still have some time. Um, so that's sort of the history of dialogue up to up to today. And then, so where we stand today is we've got, you know, the compared to the five people who were there seventeen years ago, there's now somewhere between twenty and twenty-five people, depending on how you count it where the company was owned 75% by clients and 25% by, by management back then. It's now 25% by the users and 50% by the management and 25% by the employees, roughly. Um, and, you know, although the, the clients no longer own the company, um, our emphasis is still on keeping the existing clients happy because you know they're they're paying for what we do and we also expect any potential new clients to go and ask the existing users what it's like to be a customer maybe that's a very old fashioned idea these days people don't do that with software but um we still believe fundamentally in paying for what you use is a is a healthy way to run society um and and that this focus on things being free is, is actually going to go away again, right? I mean, APL is not here for years or decades. It's here for centuries. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, we can talk more about that in a bit. But, but of course, the, the existing users understand that attracting new users, certainly now, now that they've sort of all started to reinvest and they need to hire people, they really need us to work on attracting the next generation and making APL look like a modern, respectable tool. So they're actually happy for us to do that. Um, I don't think they worry that we're not putting enough into the into the product compared to chasing after new users. So you know, our intention now is you know ramp up the community building. Um, 
we realize we need to write much more documentation. It's sort of our Achilles heel at the moment, I think, is it's uh, the tool is much better than you can find out easily. And um, there's actually, a, I mean, there's sort of a historical reason for that, which is that um, uh, IBM, SDSC, and IP Sharp sold all the new APL systems. And then as their mainframe business or as their businesses started to fade and Dyadic invested in this technologically superior APL interpreter, people migrated to Dialog APL, but they all knew APL already. So dyadic systems never really needed to train new users. They just got, they were just served to us on a plate. And so there's this, there's this hole in, in what we're doing. And, uh, you know, that's why Rich is here. Walking around trying to fill, fill holes or more accurately to, to yank the information out of the existing knowledgeable people's brains and put it into a form that other people can find without yeah. literally having to ask. Yeah, and some of it's actually written down. It's just written down in places that you can't find. <laughs> um, yeah, so so that you know that's that's a growing part of what we do. But then you know there's technical stuff to do as well. For, so for version 19, we've just started really talking. So that's the release that will be out in in a year. Um, there's the bridge to what I don't know, Connor. Maybe you know what's the correct term for the platform previously known as .NET Core? Is <laughs> that .NET six? Oh, six point I think they're just calling it .NET. Yeah, it's just the versions. And and uh, so we have a, a bridge for the framework, but now we need to sort of rebuild the equivalent for the for .NET. And we think one of the things we might want to do is to add some language support for async features that have become uh, a very big thing in, in .NET in the last uh, five years or so. I think everything has an async interface now. Um, we're working on revising, sort of fundamentally rewriting our IO handling to better support shell scripting. We have some shell scripting in the version that's just going out now, 18.2, but you can't attach ride to it to debug. Uh, and there's all sorts of things that, that don't work very well with redirected IO. And that's all part of being able to use Docker containers and in general run headless better. So we've got a bit of technological catching up to do there that, that will hopefully be in the next release. Uh, we've got the 64-bit ARM systems that are now starting to become a thing. So there's the, the M1 Max and the Raspberry Pi now, I think, is going 64-bit. Um, Android, we don't quite know what to do with yet. Um, we're on the fence. Um, better understand Linux and Mac users because, you know, we, we started out on Unix and then DOS. And then for two decades, Windows was where all the users were. And now that's changing again. Linux and Mac are or certainly Linux are becoming much, much more important and, and are the future, I think. And we have a lot of learning and, and uh, we have work on keyboards and fonts um, because Linux users don't seem particularly happy with how we handle that. Maybe that's a more general problem. And let's see what else. Well, more of more of the open source APL tools and packages. We really want to to open that up wide now and push as much as we can. And I'm also thinking that some of the interface layers that we have that are written in C, like the wrapper we have for the Chromium embedded framework, we might want to 
open source that um, so that it's easier for people to contribute to the parts of the system that are moving the fastest uh, and where people might want to port to another platform. And that's hard for us to do. Um, yeah, I know we talked about the this further simplification of the licensing. I hope that that happens now in 18.2, but it, it may be next uh, next release. So that that's the next release. And then longer term, we, we have some um, uh, sort of bigger things we're working on. We've been struggling for probably a decade to understand how we can work 64-bit integers into our numeric tower. 64-bit integers are currently voodoo because they have higher precision than, than double precision floating point. So if you do, if you round off by saying floor 0.5 plus x, you go to, uh, you know, you might have an integer with more than 53 bits, and then it goes to double land. And when it comes back, it could be way, you know, somewhere else in the universe. Um, and we have some ideas for how we will introduce, we think, multiple numeric towers. So each array is tagged with whether it's in the fast tower, we call it, which is the binary one that we have now, or the decimal tower, which will include 64-bit integers and our quadruple precision uh, decimal floating points. And then the third tower only actually having one type in it, which is um, rational numbers. For it. So we have the infinite precision as well. We think we have some ideas for how we can get those to interact in a way that APL programmers will find reasonably easy to understand. But uh, that, that's more of a, a long-term research project, uh, two or three years out at least. Um, there's the literal array notation, which Adam has done presentations on and I think exists in I don't know. There are models of it. I don't know if it's in BQN or Zymer's APL. There are models of it in some APL systems or array language systems. We want to get that into, into Dialog APL soon. And then there's you know the the defects and the missing features that uh, that are being experimented with in BQN, for example. You know we know that we need more inserts and folds. We need to figure out exactly what to do sorry what was the last thing you said inserts and folds inserts and folds right i mean the reductions that we have in regular apl are lacking you've you've talked about that a couple of times i think uh connor i have J jay somewhat recently introduced a few more types of fold and people who come from the functional land they know about fold l and fold r and Blah, blah, blah. But dialogue has fold, which does the one type of fold, but also it's slightly weird because of the right to left. But Iverson had his reasons back then. But now the functional people come over and they go, it's called fold, but it's not the same as Pascal's fold. And it's make, making me confused and angry. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Jay has some of them. BQN has, has others. Uh, I mean, the whole sort of prefix thinking. Mm -hmm. Um that I'm not an expert in, you'll get much more mileage talking to Adam and, and Rich, but it's, you know, it, there is stuff there that's missing. And, and there's, you know, 
things like the slash the the schizophrenic slashes in in dialogue apl which i'm sure mm. you're familiar connor with connor if you've been trying to write trains in dialogue apl uh, that w- i'm uh, actually not sure what my number one ap dialogue apl request would it be would it be uh somehow fixing that so it's unambiguous <laughs> which is for the listener that's not uh keeping up you depending on how you use like the backslash is not only a reduction, it's also compress or filter. Yeah. And uh, it can be it can be ambiguous. And so at times you need to uh, add a couple extra Unicode characters to yeah. disambiguate. So that's that's one thing. And there's also that uh, BQN uses the logical and an or as uh, in the monadic case for sort. I'm actually not sure which one. Right, the sort, yeah. If I could only choose one, which one would I want more? Um, it's a good question. I don't know. I, I would ask. I would ask Santa for both. Um. <laughs> Watching the array casts is for me uh, very valuable. Um, I'll probably learn something even when I listen to my own episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean, we you know that we are aware of those those defects, and you know we we can't move as fast as as the other guys. Uh, you know, Jay Jay preceded us by a decade or two. BQN is experimenting. I mean, it's wonderful to have something like BQN to observe where you can see, well, you know, what can you do if you don't have the backwards uh, compatibility requirement? What could you do? And does it work? And then, you know, we can come along and, um, you know, the the, in, the commercial juggernaut uh, sweep up the um, the good ideas. There's still there's still a lot of things that uh, you know I I pick and choose now when I solve little programming problems. If it's whether it's Perl, Weekly Challenge, or Leetcode, I will choose the language J, APL, or BQN based on because none of yeah. them have like a superset. So APL Dialog APL still has the decode yeah. and encode, and um, yeah. also has GCD, which BQN doesn't have. So like if my problem if my so- solution requires GCD, well I'm going straight to Dialog APL because. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in a very envious position that you don't actually have yeah. to <laughs> write code for in this in these languages for a living. Uh, but I mean, where you know where we want to be is that in in three years, four years, I can't say how long it'll be. Uh, you would pick Dialog APL every time. Yeah, that'd be awesome, Morton. Um, talking about supporting for uh, you know the companies that you know use Dialog APL, has there been any thought about say freezing a version and then doing exploration past that for a, a different version? I guess that means you end up having to support two versions. That's not what you want to do, is that right? No, I mean John Scholes did. We we did put out John Scholes put out a version once that he, he deliberately based on a I don't know three version old out of support version of Dialog APL where he experimented with closures and functions returning functions and stuff like that. Um, I have this dream, which I don't know whether is realistic. I mean, we have, I don't know if you've looked at our implementation of futures and isolates, but basically in Dialog APL, an isolate is a namespace, which appears to be in your workspace. But if you dot into it and do anything, that's actually processed in another process. And you immediately get a future back as a placeholder and you can pass that around as an argument to other functions or you know, making closed arrays with hundreds of different futures. 
And as long as the interpreter doesn't need to know the actual value of the future, you can do what you want. And then when you eventually say, well, display it or add one to it or something, then the interpreter just blocks. And I think that there's an experimental version of J that Henry Rich was, was involved in, which has something very similar. Um, uh, I mean, the implementation is completely different, but the ideas are are similar. What I'm hoping we might do is um, set up a system where you can have multiple versions of Dialog APL that are connected together in this fashion. So you might have actually several versions of Dialog APL, possibly incompatible, all appearing available to you at once. Um, and that would allow us to experiment in a way where users can, you know, they can keep their legacy code all running in the old interpreter. Um, but it's terribly dangerous. As soon as you, as soon as you announce a new version of something, the users get scared, confused, bewildered. They stop doing things until they understand where you're going. We, I mean, we have the one. Let me see. What what else have I got on my to do list before I, I get into that discussion? So, I mean, there's um, no, you know, more of the same. And we've got the co-defense compiler, of course, which Aaron has been working on as a research project, and hopefully we can bring that in. And again, this namespace connectivity might be exactly the way we hook that in. In fact, the way Aaron's um, co-defense compiler currently integrates with Dialog APL is exactly the same sort of, you, you give it a namespace and it compiles the namespace and you, you end up with something that looks identical to the APL user as what you had before, but now the functions are being executed by, by co-defense. So that it could, the namespace idea, which has been in Dialog APL for, for a very long time has proven itself to be adaptable to GUI, object-oriented programming, et cetera. It's really perhaps the main reason why Dialog APL is here today is the existence of, of namespaces. Um, but anyway, one, one of the uh, things I have in my notes is this section titled Avoid Being Seduced by Shiny Things. Um, because, you know, you, you don't want to end up like IP, IP Sharp Associates who, who um, I mean, it's a sad story, right? The APL users were all happily doing personal computing on the mainframe. They were not they didn't feel that the name, the mainframe had any problems, right? It cost, yeah, but it backups were taken. It just, it always worked. And then along comes the PC and everybody else is going wild. Oh, wow. You know, now I have my own computing environment. I can, I can do whatever I want. And the APL programs are going, yeah, well, so what? You know, I'm already doing everything I want. Uh, what's the point? And as a result, the, the APL community completely missed the significance of the PC. And suddenly, you know, a guy came along with a cart, took their IBM 3270 terminal and wheeled it off. And they just sat there going, what? <laughs> and so, so, you know, you want to be aware of what's going on around you so you don't end up there. But you also have to be careful not to move too fast, right? So if you go back to the early the early 2000s, um, our main competitor, APL, what, what were they called at the time? APL 2000, um, 
they they were told by the US government and so on that if they weren't running entirely managed code in a small number of years, they'd be out of business. So they immediately created a, a second APL interpreter competing with their existing one, which was uh, uh, based on the .NET CLR. So they had two competing uh, APL interpreters and massive confusion, and they diluted their efforts. And in the end, none of the customers switched to the .NET version. And the old one prevailed, but was now, you know, had lost five years relative to Dialog, who had just pushed on with, with the version they had. So, you know, that's, um, and then before that, actually, when, when Windows went 32-bit, STSC, I think they were called at the time, they put out a 32-bit version of um, APL Plus based on something Microsoft produced called Win32S, which was a, a little thing you could add into your Windows system that gave you a preview of the, of the Windows system, the, th the coming 32-bit Windows. And... Um, and in Europe, all the big banks and insurance companies, the users of APL had gone for OS2. And purely by accident, Dialog APL worked in the OS2 16-bit Windows compatibility box, and APL Plus didn't because it was built on, uh, on this new technology. And I mean, there's so many things like that that make me uh, sort of a bit conservative about chasing quickly after after new technologies. If you want to be around for a long time, it's better to occasionally appear a little bit um, a, a little bit slow, particularly because you have a, a user community who are luddites essentially. Um, I mean, it's a little bit. Um, I mean, the, the probably the listeners of of this podcast and a lot of the new people attracted to APL are actually very much up on functional programming and um, and all the new things that are happening in, in software engineering. But the, the people who have had the most benefit from APL through the ages and who pay most of our bills are people who are every kind of engineer other than a software engineer. And they are not interested in rewriting their code unless it's because there's new tax legislation where they have to rewrite their insurance uh, policy computations because it's a legal requirement, and they'll do that in half an hour. But if they have to rewrite it because now there's some new GUI widget library, uh, it really uh, yeah, doesn't turn them on. But anyway, so that was maybe a bit of a... Um, a rabbit hole there. I mean, there's there are so many examples of APL vendors chasing after things that turned out to be very expensive. There was a very, very good APL product called Micro APL, which was cross-platform, you know, on the Mac, on Linux, on Windows. And they bet the farm on a particular cross-platform GUI library that disappeared. Mm. That's too bad. And they just they just gave up. <laughs> it was like it was such a big I don't know, the J people have been doing QT for a while, and I've been going, eh, well, is QT going to survive, and so on. And maybe I called that one wrong. Maybe QT looks like it's quite strong, actually. It might, might last forever. Maybe, maybe we should look at QT. Should we look at Windows Assembly? Yeah. <laughs> Web Assembly. I was just going to say, I'll add that uh, the micro APL documentation is the best APL documentation. It is superb. Uh, yeah. Only because it's so simple. Like dialogues is great, but like a lot of the times, if I know it's like an uh, 
an OG, you know, APL symbol. I'll just go and try and find, it's very hard to track down, but if you, if you search micro APL reduce, that'll always get you to the micro APL website. Um. <laughs> and Rich, as, as far as I know, we, we have permission from, um, Richard Nabavi and the micro APL team to use their documentation as we please. Hey, is that so? Um, so you don't, yeah, remember that. I'll write to Richard and ask him to be sure, but I'm pretty sure, you know, they gave, they essentially gave micro APL to us to host so that anybody who was still, who still wanted it could download it and it's somewhere on our website. Um, anyway, I think we're, we're, uh, I sh I've been talking enough. I mean, I have, I have some notes here on interesting discussions like uh, free and open source and backwards compatibility and uh, is APL a notation or a programming language? And, and maybe we should we should return to those later unless there's one that you would really like to pick off now. I think we have, what, 10 minutes left or something like that? Yeah, we've just got over, I'd say, yeah, five to 10 minutes left. I would probably say let's let's hang on to all those topics and you know we'll definitely have you on in a, a future episode. But in the last yeah. few minutes here, um, Maybe yeah. we open up to questions. This is a one that has a hopefully a short answer. You can just say yeah. yes, no, yeah. or maybe. Um, you mentioned GitHub at one point, yep. and one of the nice things to bring up Smalltalk again was Smalltalk a similar language in many respects in that they have the workspace images, and um, it's hard to adopt that model to GitHub where you're just storing everything in source files because that's not how Smalltalk and APL work. They did come up with in their latest Faro editor a sort of uh, for file format that you can very easily integrate and just say, you know, choose GitLab, GitHub, Bitbucket, and poof, it'll, you know, you give it a repo, it shows up. Is that mm -hmm. something that would ever be possible? Like I know Tart Tartan or Tartin. Tartan. In, in 18.2 coming out soon, there's an experimental user command that's a bit overpowered in some senses. It's called get. Um, and it's ostensibly because, you know, there's lots of ways to bring different types of either APL source code or data into the workspace. And you need to know which magic incantation is for which. Whereas get is a kind of wrapper which tries its best to figure out that for you. But it also has a really nice feature which I'm hoping will allow people to share code quite nicely. You can point it at a GitHub repository or a hosted URL of a, a workspace or even a zipped folder, a, a zip file that contains a linkable uh, set of APL text source. And it will pull that off the internet, unzip it for you and bring it into your workspace. Does it do the reverse of being able to push to a GitHub repo? No. So if so, no. So the two things I know that, well, no, one I know definitely does that is Carlisle Group's Dado dialogue development operations thing has Git integrated, but also its packages are entirely like a package is a thing on GitHub is how yeah. it's defined it. But I, I think, I think though Connor is looking, Connor is looking for something where the what's put up on GitHub is text, right, so that it diffs nicely. No, that yeah, get 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 can do that. So, but but I'm um, so at the moment our our model is that each function or each namespace maybe becomes a single text file. We we're not thinking that people really want to write the entire workspace. I mean, we have users who have 
hundred megabytes of source code that yeah. they might load into the workspace. And uh, having that as a single text file is probably not very. Uh, is, is that what you were you were asking, Connor? Well, no, yeah. So it does it does sound like it's on the horizon, though. That that uh, dialogue is thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, have you looked? Have you looked at this this tool we have called Link, which is the, our current best shot at at loading text into a workspace? And then if you ever edit a function, the the text file gets updated immediately, and you have a nice folder full of of files that you can easily manage on Git. So I've seen the I saw the uh, Dialog um, 2021 presentation on it, but I have not played around with it yet. So um, right, yeah. So yeah, have a look at that and tell me whether you you know what what's missing from that. Do we have any final questions from Bob, Rich, or Stephen, or should we just th throw back to Morton? I, I think it's been fascinating to hear the history and the background because it, it gives me a lot more uh, depth into some of the challenges that you see you're adapting to, like having the antenna out for things that are changing without having to jump in that direction makes perfect sense to me, but it's it's a really difficult it's, balancing act. It's, and, it's really hard, and, and also as an APL vendor, because you have these non-technical users a lot, they're actually looking for you to be the oracle who decides, you know, they're not going to look at a new technology until we make a quad something that maps to it until then they're going to ignore it and so they're relying on dialogue to come along and say when it's time to to learn something new but i mean it's it's uh i'm so grateful right that i've been able to essentially get paid to do my my hobby for more than you know i've been i've been doing happy array programming for 45 years uh, I did a talk at Functional Conf about apl and sort of a little bit about myself and then the coffee break this guy comes up to me and he says are you telling me you've been doing using the same programming language for more than 35 years and you're still smiling? Like that was, you know, <laughs> completely unthinkable. Um, and 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 one of the things I'm really happy with in, in the time of dialogue is that we've been able to bring together so many of the people who historically were forced by their corporations to be enemies, right? So the uh, Jim Brown at, at IBM and Eric Iverson, uh, Ken Iverson, Roger, these people who were at war. And, and uh, we've been actually able to work with all of them in the last 15 years and, and, um, and, and really make use of a lot of the ideas that have been generated, try and bring them together in the same place. And that we managed to get across what I think historically has been a very technologically challenging period from the beginning of GUI until today where things are sort of starting to settle down, although JavaScript frameworks are still mutating faster than viruses. But, uh, you know, I'm also really hoping that that one day I'll be able to sit in my rocking chair and, and say that I helped or at least did not hinder the beginning of careers of the people who will be the great array language implementers of the future. And that's not just the people who are at Dialog today, but you know, Nick Nikolov was at Dialog before he did NGN APL, and uh, and Marshall worked for us for a while before he he needed to move faster. Um, and I was perhaps a, a very strange thing to bring up, but I'd like to mention it, uh, even though this is a technical podcast. I'm really hoping that the new generation of APL implementers will also have more gender diversity because at Dialog, I think we're 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 
developing reasonable cultural diversity, but at the moment it's still, you know, the, the girls run the company and the boys tinker with code. And of course I'm dating myself by only having two categories there, but I really hope it'll you know become much more inclusive and we'll see more kinds of people working with APL in the future in general. Yeah. Yeah. I can completely, uh, agree with that. It's a problem that C++ also has, uh, I think a lot of programming languages have, yeah. IP Sharp, apparently, you know, they ha they got it right, and then something happened along the way. Um. Yeah, though, so e even at IP Sharp, the women quickly migrate towards, they man they migrate towards management much faster than, than the boys. And, and, you know, rightly so, they're better at it. But, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, it seems, yeah. Sorry, it seems to me that, that that women demand that there's somehow more meaningful content in what you're doing, whereas the guys are happier to go and chase, you know, the wheels of cars that run past and stuff like that. But hopefully that's, I think it's changing. I mean, that is changing. I believe it is. And, uh, yeah, on that note, so that's a call to action to, if you, uh, if you want to write your own programming language, uh, CTO of Dialog Limited has just uh, said, you know, please go ahead. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> oh, or if you'd like to be a language implementer and you're not a, one of the boys, uh, give me a call, okay? Because we will be hiring soon. Oh yeah, we'll put uh, uh, links in the in the show notes um, for not just that, but for everything that we've said in this uh, this podcast. But um, yeah, I guess we did our Arraycast at contact contact at arraycast.com at the beginning, so. Um, we don't need to say that. So yeah, we'll just say once again, thank you so much, Morton, for coming on. Uh, as uh, as always with many of our guests, um, or all of our guests, I should say, you know, we'll we'll definitely want to have you back in the future. And um, that list of topics you mentioned is, I'm sure, could fill not just one but a, a number of podcasts. So uh, we'll we'll definitely have to have you back on. And thank you um, both to you and Gita and everyone at Dialogue Limited. Um, I think I've said this before on past podcasts, but you know, I would have never discovered these languages if it hadn't been for uh, dialogue APL and, you know, continuing to carry the torch and setting up, you know, the website, tryapl.org. Um, it has greatly enhanced my love of, you know, programming and programming languages, having discovered APL. And I don't think it would have happened if it had, hadn't have been for, uh, for your company. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. That makes it all worthwhile. And with that, I guess we'll say happy array programming. Happy, happy array programming. programming.